Gracious God, we thank you for your word, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is proclaimed in the gospel and uh, whom the scriptures bear witness to. We pray that you'd help us uh, to come to know him more this morning and to be prepared to live before him well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I think the word temptation is a very common word in our vocabulary in the contemporary world. Uh, We use it very often. Uh, So we speak of things like uh, being tempted by rich and luscious foods, such as chocolate or whatever else it might be for you, or we are tempted by images of people that we desire or things that we desire. Uh, We talk about being tempted by profit or by money or being tempted by our own thoughts, or temptations to be lazy, or temptations by good things, or temptations from bad things. Uh, The language of temptation, I think, is very common in our contemporary world. Uh, And temptation is the main topic of the passage that we're going to look at today. And so to get started, I thought I would talk to you a little bit about the way the Bible talks about temptation, because it's somewhat different from the way we talk about temptation. Now, the first thing that I I need to say is exactly that. The way we talk about temptation is not the way it is generally talked about in the Bible. Let me give you an example. In our contemporary world, uh, at least the world I come from, uh, thin is given the status of goodness, isn't it? To be thin is good. For that reason, many people in our society have a goal in life. That is to be thin. Now, then chocolate comes along. (laughs) And chocolate is full of two of the most important enemies of thinness. Sugar and, well, fat, really. That's the bottom line, isn't it? Um, However, it is also full of things that taste very good, isn't it? Uh, and so in many ways, you, consider, you can consider chocolate to be a seducer, can't you? Away from the goal of thinness. It enchants us and it begs us to leave our good way of thinness and to feed our hedonist bent. That is, to grow, to, to no longer be thin, but to be satisfied with good taste and good chocolate. Chocolate is therefore a temptation to leave that path of thinness a seduction away from what society says is good. That is how many of us, I think, about temptation. I think, think about temptation. It is a seduction. But in the Bible, temptation is viewed somewhat differently from that. In the Bible, temptation is not so much about seduction. It is much more about test or trial. So to tempt someone is to test them rather than so much as to seduce them. So you can test them for good purposes, can't you? Uh, You can test their metal, that is, see how good they are, how solid they are, how substantial they are. Or you can test them to prove their worth, their value. You can even test them to improve their quality. And in the Bible, God does this sort of testing on a regular basis. You see, he tests his people to see if they are committed to him, to test their faith, or even to test their faithfulness. However, the Bible also talks about temptation for evil purposes. So in the Bible, a person can be tempted in order to trap them into a wrong action. In the Bible, Satan does this sort of tempting on a regular basis. 
Uh, he lays traps for people, tries to drag them away from true faith to true trust in God. His object is to get them to forsake God and to turn away from him or even to forsake his ways. He tempts them, tests them. So there is a general introduction to the idea of temptation in the Bible. Now, let's get down to the detail. And to do this, uh, I'm going to give you a sort of, if you like, a history of temptation in the Bible, a very abbreviated history, I need to tell you. But nevertheless, I'm going to give it to you. Uh, The first major incident occurs within the first three pages of the Bible. We're told that in those passages, in those passages, that God creates the world, the universe, and he creates it a good place. In fact, at the end of seven days, he says, it is very good. All of it is good. God sees in, chapter, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we're told that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Genesis 2 tells us that God then placed Adam and Eve in this good world. In fact, he placed them in a garden called Eden, Uh, the very best part of his good world. In fact, and in that garden, he gave them everything that they needed. Everything. He gave them all the goodness of his created world. What's more, he gave them all the goodness of the spiritual world that is regular and unrestricted access to him in the garden. He was there, they were there. He placed a tree, uh, but God also did something else. He placed something in the garden that would test Adam and Eve. He placed a tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told Adam and Eve, look, you can eat anything you like in the garden except that, the fruit of that tree. And into that context, a serpent came. And uh, that serpent immediately took advantage of the presence of that tree in order to tempt Adam and Eve. And he told them how good it would be for every aspect of their life if they could just eat from the fruit of that particular tree he attempted to persuade them that God was holding back on them that he'd actually restricted something from their access he was keeping something good from them and the serpent sowed doubts in the minds of Adam and Eve that God really did have their best interests in mind and Adam and Eve caved in that is they snatched out at being like God And they showed us what being human in many ways is all about. You see, humans are all about being... Being human is about, in so many ways, being centred on yourself, isn't it? And what works for you. It's all about wanting your own thing your own way without God. It's all about putting aside God's way of doing things in order to go your own way without God. It's all about um, doing things in favour of yourself and your interests. Being human is about, therefore... Uh, choosing to be God yourself rather than letting God be God. It's saying, well, actually, God, uh, I know you'd like to be God, but I really would like to be my own God. Thank you very much. It's about being independent from God. And the end result of such an attitude is that in the end, you can't remain related to God, can you? And so in Adam and Eve's situation, God says, well, look, uh, you're banned from this garden and from access to my presence in the intimacy that you've had it. He sends them out. And their descendants with them, as it were, continue outside the garden until they are fit to return. Now, let's move on from Adam and Eve and uh, move later on in the Bible, move through history and uh, past God's choosing of Abraham, 
past God's sending of Abraham's descendants uh, into Egypt, past God's rescue of the Israelites out of Egypt, and we want to alight when they're wandering in the wilderness after God has rescued them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness, uh, and we find them between Egypt and the Promised Land. And Psalm 78, which we read as our first reading, gives us a picture of how the Israelites acted in the wilderness. I wonder if you noticed it. Have a look at it together. Open in your Bibles at Psalm 78. I've forgotten a page number, but Psalms is easy to find. You just open the middle of your Bibles, there's Psalms, and you just find number 78. And I want you to look at the first eight verses. Particularly, I want you to look at verses 5 to 8. God gives Israel his word, his law, his commandments. Verse 5 says, he established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel. And he commands his ancestors that they should teach their children this. And then in verses 7 to 8, can you see it there? He says that he did this for a purpose. He did it so that Israel would not be like their ancestors... They, the the Israelites, would keep his commandments. They would not be stubborn and rebellious. They would not be a generation whose heart was not steadfast, in whose spirit spirit was not faithful to God. But look at verses 17 and 18. Flip, Flip down a bit. They speak about what the reality became in the wilderness for Israel. This is what Israel was like in the wilderness, 17 and 18. They sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. Can you see what they did? Instead of trusting in God, Israel refused to live by God's word. They refused to have... They refused to recognise that he had their best interests in mind. They refused to trust that he really was good and he wanted good things for them. But you see, in many ways, they're just like Adam and Eve, aren't they? God had given them good things and they wanted not to do God's things. So God punished them, just like he punished Adam and Eve. And they were not yet ready, you see, to live with him in the garden. And in fact, their time in the promised land shows that they just couldn't keep doing, couldn't keep obeying God. And so eventually God ejected them out of the land just as Adam and Eve had been ejected out of uh, Eden. But, you know, as we hear, God did let Israel enter the land. They made it into Canaan. God looked after them. They asked for kings. He gave them kings. But still they doubted his goodness. They chose to listen to all the siren calls that came to them. And they chose to do their own thing their own way without God. And the kings failed just as Adam and Eve had failed and as they had failed in the wilderness. Uh, Friends, I wonder if you can hear this. This is very important as we come to the passage we're going to look at today. The story in the garden is identical to the story in the wilderness, is identical to the story of the kings of Israel. God's kings are the same as God's people who are the same as Adam and Eve. All succumb to temptation, all fail. All disobey God and all are sinners. That is, rebels against God. That is, independent from God, wanting to do their own thing their own way, without God. Now, let's see if we can draw all of this history of temptation together. I've got four points to make. First, God's people live in a world full of temptations and tests. Okay, God's people live in a world full of temptations and tests. 
Second, in such a world, God desires for them that they trust his goodness and advice, that they depend upon his word, and that they trust that goodness. Third, human nature is such that humans cannot stand up to temptation. Despite many minor resistances, at times, they inevitably cave in. Uh, To be human is to be frail, isn't it? Uh, If any of you have no trouble in this area, you could come and talk to me later on and tell me what your great secret is. Because we're like this, aren't we? There's not one of us here who does not fail in terms of what God demands. You see, we are unable to stand against temptation We are are captive to the evil one with all his wiles. Uh, There's a fourth. Because of their independence and their lack of trust in God, humans stand under the judgment of God. They face his punishment. So, with that passage in mind, with with all of this in mind, let's turn to our passage for this morning, uh, Luke chapter 4. Now, in order to understand Luke 4, you need to understand Luke 1 to 3, which you've all been working through, as I understand. But I want to focus on one thing. As you read Luke 1 to 3 in your Bibles, you will find there are a whole host of quotations. Did you notice it? They're all inset and put in slightly different font and so on. Quotations all the time in Luke's 1 to 3. And Luke is doing it deliberately. He's quoting the Old Testament again and again. He does it as a way of telling us that Jesus is God's appointed and anointed person. This has been what God has done in Jesus has been planned for a long time, and Jesus is the fulfilment. He's the one God promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis. He's the one to whom the prophets look. He's the hope of all Israel. Now, with all of those promises, all of those promises are to some extent summarised in the passage immediately before the one we get to in Luke 4. Have a look at Luke 3.22. God tells us that Jesus is his only son. That's another way of saying that he is God's true king. And in Luke 3.23-38, we're told that Jesus is also the son of Adam. Not only is he the true king, he's the son of Adam. And with that, we come to our passage for today. So Luke 4, make sure you have it open in your Bibles with me. First thing I want you to notice is the circumstance of the temptation. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that the temptation occurs in a wilderness. Now, that should ring all sorts of little bells if you've been sticking with me through this history that we've just done. They also tell us the temptation occurs over 40 days. The temptation in the wilderness had occurred over 40 years. God is involved through his spirit. But Satan is also involved. So you can see what's going on here, can't you? You see, uh, not only is Jesus a new Adam, he's he's not only a, a new king of Israel, the true king of Israel, he's also a new Israel in itself. He is repeating the situation of Adam, repeating the situation of the kings of Israel, repeating the situation of Israel itself, and there he is. Jesus is reliving Israelite history in many ways, in microcosm, just here in these events. But he's also reliving human history. He's also reliving kingly history. 
And the question is this. How will he go? How will he go? Will he be just like his ancestors? Or will something new and different happen here? And with that in mind, let's look at temptation number one. Uh, You see, just as the focus of temptation in the wilderness and in the garden was food, so it is here. Jesus eats nothing for 40 days. And in the midst of his hunger, the devil comes to him in verse 3. And he says to him, see it there? If you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Of course, this temptation could never have been a temptation to Adam or Israel, but it was for Jesus. He was hungry. 40 days is a long time without food. It's impossible to think of in Malaysia is what I have learnt. But it was for Jesus, you see, a very significant temptation. He was hungry. He was human. And the devil knew who he was. You see, Jesus was not only human. He was God in the flesh. He had the ability to turn stones into bread if he wanted to. He could do it with the word of his mouth. But here Jesus makes his intentions clear. And I want you to look closely at verse 4. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, and he says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. That's a profound statement, really, because in the wilderness, Israel was always worried about their bellies. You have a look, read of the narrative. They're always worried about their bellies. They wanted full stomachs like we do. Um, And God wanted them, though, to trust him and to trust his word. He wanted them to live depending on him rather than on the fullness of their bellies. Uh, He didn't want them to be worried about how full their bellies were with food. No, he wanted them to be worried about how full their lives were with his word, which told of his goodwill. Jesus, you see, is like Israel was meant to be. He's not going to live by filling his belly with physical food. He's going to live dependent upon God and his word. And so he throws God's word back at Satan, which is the word that he will live by. He is one who does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's going to live by God's written word, God's spoken word instead. That brings us to temptation number two. Now, this time the devil doesn't tempt Jesus on the basis of who he is, Instead, he tempts him on the basis of his authority. Look at what he says and does in verses 5 to 7. And the devil took him out and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, the temptation must have been incredibly strong for the Lord Jesus. You see, in essence, the devil is giving him a, a shortcut to the goal that God had intended, that Jesus should be the king over all the world. The shortcut had a couple of flaws to it, though, that Satan offers him. Uh, first, it cuts out suffering, doesn't it? You go just straight, straight to the end. No suffering on the way. And that suffering, though, will be the suffering which will save the world. You see, in essence, uh, sorry, and uh, second, it gives to the devil 
what properly only belongs to God. Humans, you see, were made for God, not for the devil. They were made for the worship of God, not for the worship of the evil one. And Jesus will have it no other way. The only allegiance worth giving is allegiance to God. This is God's word and it stands written and it must be adhered to. And so he responds back to the evil one in verse 8. It is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. No shortcuts for me. I will go along the path God has ordained for me. The resolve of Jesus at this point would give no option but the cross. We don't know what details he knew about it at this point, but we know he knew suffering was coming because within a few chapters he will tell us it's the only way and he chose it. For only God's way is worth it, you see, and only God's way works. And only God's way will bring salvation to the world. And that brings us to temptation number three. Now, in this temptation, the devil returns to the theme of who Jesus is. And this time he's far more subtle. Can you see it? He quotes scripture himself. It's very cunning. The scriptures come from Psalm 91. And he promises that God's promised Messiah, and it promises that God's promised Messiah would be given angelic protection. So, you know, you've got something that really sort of is speaking to Jesus and his situation. And the devil challenges Jesus to listen to scripture. He calls upon him to show his trust by acting on it. But Jesus sees through it. He sees it's really an attempt to tempt God as Israel did in the wilderness. It's testing God to see whether he would keep his promise. And scripture makes clear that God's people must not put God to the test. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then in verse 13, we're told that the devil leaves him for an opportune time. He's lost this round. He'll keep going later on. So, let's see if we can tie together some of what we've seen in this passage. The overall impression is that Jesus is determined to live the way God intended, isn't it? God's intention was humans trust him, that they listen to his word, that they live by that word. The numerous quotations of scripture indicate that's the way Jesus is determined to live, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, to submit himself to the will of God. He would live and die by God's word. Uh, that his food would be God's will. He would be truly human because that's what humans were designed to be. People who live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He'd be truly human in, in, in a way that no one else in history had ever been. Resolute. Full. Uncompromised. He would be the first true human. Now we've done this general look at temptation. We've looked at how Jesus tackles it. Now we need to see what we make of how this story fits with us, don't, don't we? We need to see what, what does this mean for us. Now my guess is that on first reading of this passage, we are really impressed with how Jesus handles the devil, aren't we? We look at it and we say, I need to do that. We see him quoting scripture, resisting the devil, and we find him a model for how we deal with temptation that comes our way. And uh, we know temptation very well, don't we? may not be the same temptations as Jesus faced, but we know it. And so when the devil tempts us, we think, I've got to do what Jesus does. 
And when the devil tempts us sexually, so we go back to scripture and we remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 27, you, sh- you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or when we're tempted by greed, we tell ourselves the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. Or we might strengthen ourselves with Paul's words that greed amounts to idolatry. And our view is that as we do this, we will quench the flaming missiles of the evil one and show our determination to live lives like Jesus, not by bread, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And there is truth to that. But let me tell you that while it is good to observe Jesus dealing with the devil and learn how he does it, I'm not sure that's why the passage is here. I'm not sure that's why the passage is here. I think it's here for a far more profound reason. Let me show you and let me explain. You see, when we enter this story, we do so knowing who Jesus is, don't we? We've heard about it in the preceding chapters time and time and time and time again. He's the spirit anointed one. He's God's Christ, God's Messiah. He's the beloved son of God, but he's also the son of Adam. He's the one who enters the fray in Luke 4. And in Luke 4, this fully divine, fully human king engages with the great opponent of God, of God's people and of God's purpose. And he has done here what with every human and with he, he confronts what has been done with every human being in history. And this and the evil one does here what he's done up until this point with every human. But what does Jesus do? He resists. Every human up till this point has failed. The normal case when humans have been tempted by the devil is that they walk away significantly weakened, don't they? When when you are defeated by the evil one, you walk away weakened. Now, not in this case. Humans so often demonstrate that they are frail and so human. Not in this case. Look at verse 14, because I deliberately added verse 14 to be read. Read it and tell me how different it is from everyone before him. Luke 4.14 tells us how Jesus walked out of his encounter with the evil one. Not weaker. Rather, he returns to Galilee in what? In the power of the Spirit. And he begins to teach the very word that he lived by. You see, where Adam and Israel had failed, he succeeded. Where every human had failed, he succeeded. This incident is therefore a clanging, resounding, ringing bell in human history. It sounds an ominous note for Satan and for all his minions. And it rings out their defeat. They are left cowering in the corner, wondering when they might have another go at this man and knowing it will be fruitless. And that's what this passage is about, friends. It is about the possibility of a new start with a new human like none before. And we know how it will end. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says that Satan departs from him. But we know that he only does so until an opportune time. He will return. And at an opportune time he will come 
And he and his representatives will take this man and they'll hang him on a cross. And on that cross, Jesus will do it again. He will defeat them. He will wind up their power over humans. As Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 15, Jesus on the cross will disarm the spiritual forces, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He will make a public example of them. He will triumph over them in the cross. And then he will return and sit at the right hand of God in the power of the spirit forever to rule over God's world. So what does this passage mean for us then? What is its impact? How does it help us? Well, to answer the question, I want you to go to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. So Revelation and turn to chapter 12. Easy to find, last book, and you just flip back till you find chapter 12. And I want you to look particularly at verse 9. You see, verse 9 tells us about the defeat of Satan. It tells us that he is thrown down. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice verse 11. See, verse 11 tells us how the saints conquer the evil one. And it's clear and categorical, isn't it? You see, they have conquered him by what? The blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. In other words, the saints defeat Satan not by their own resistance, but by the death of Jesus Only the death of Jesus and our word of testimony about that death can defeat the evil one. We ourselves cannot defeat him. Only Jesus can do this. And he began it in Luke 4. He signed, sealed and delivered it on the cross. And he will finally wrap it up on the last day when he finally flings Satan into the burning sea forever gone. If that's true, then what defence can we Christians have in the face of temptation? What should we do when we're tempted by sin? Well, this passage seems to point us in the right direction. In one direction, we should remind ourselves and the devil of an eternal truth. The internal, unchangeable truth is that he, the devil, has been defeated already by a man dying on a cross And that our destiny is dependent upon Jesus and what he's done. We are united with him, bound with him, inheritors of his victory. If we belong to Jesus, the evil one cannot harm us. If we belong to Jesus, he will keep us. We can in temptation turn to God and turn to him for grace to help in time of need. No one but no one can snatch you out of the hand of this one. And God will bring you blameless to his throne on the last day. He will do it. He is faithful. He will do it. Can you see what I'm saying? The way to face temptation is not to rely on yourself and your own ability. It is not to rely on your own strength and willpower. No, the way to deal with temptation is to rely on the only human who's defeated temptation. It is to trust in Jesus and in the power given to you in his spirit. Jesus alone can deliver you. He alone is victorious over the evil one. So trust in him and trust in him alone. Conquer the devil by the blood of the lamb and by your word of testimony about him. 
That's where your victory will be found. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we come to you in all our frailty because we know that we are weak. But we know that in believing in Jesus, we believe in one who is strong and through his life, death, resurrection and ascension, he has defeated the evil one. On the cross, he triumphed over him. Please help us, we pray, that we might, when faced with temptation, we might trust in him. We might know that he alone is victorious and we might turn to him again and again and again that he might be overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.